The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, well, as I mentioned, today is a, a sad day. It is our last day in uh, the book of Philippians. We've been doing this series, A Rebel's Anthem, as we've gone through this entire book. And we, we finish it up today. Congratulations, you, you made it all the way through. And uh, next week, we start a new series. We're calling it Dust to Dust, Stories of Transformation. And I'm very excited for that series. We're going to be hearing stories from actually all of you, uh, where not all of you, but some of you, a selected number, uh, will be, be sharing stories of how God is actually actively working in our church body right now, in this local church, what he's doing. And we'll get to hear from people that, that are a part of, part of that. And then I'll also kind of tie that in with some Bible stories of transformation that we see too. So it's going to be very exciting, um, especially if you have friends that are maybe peeking over the fence at Christianity, kicking the tires, feeling it out. Definitely encourage them to come to this series. It's going to be really great to hear what God is doing um, in, in people's lives in our church. Um, but this week we finish up Philippians, and so I've titled this message. Each week our title has been uh, after a song that has the word rebel in it. And so I've titled this message uh, Rebel Yell. We all know who that's by? Billy Idol, thank you. Okay, all right. Uh, so we got Billy Idol, Rebel Yell. And, and I picked that song because if, if you know the chorus, uh, there's a word that he repeats again and again that's actually really fitting for our text for today. Uh, so let me see if you know it. it. It starts off, the chorus starts, In the midnight hour she cried, blank, blank, blank. With a rebel yell she cried, blank, blank, blank. Does anyone know what that blank, blank, blank is? What those words are? More, more, more. Did I say it? Yes, Emily, thank you. Yes, the sign for more. Um, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Describe more, more, more. More, more, more. And, and today, uh, our, our text is about the opposite of that. It's about contentment. It's about learning to say, where I'm at right now is enough. I'm satisfied with where I'm at right now. I am content. That's what Paul's talking about. But in order for us to get how contentment works, uh, we need to understand one of the most misinterpreted Bible passages of all time. Uh, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, how many of y'all have heard that, that verse before, right? Okay, excellent. So uh, when I was a little boy, I had a poster in my room and I had a picture of like a, a cartoon boy on it. And it was this cartoon boy who was like wearing and holding all sorts of sports gear, anything you could possibly imagine. Like he had both a football helmet and a bicycle helmet on. He was wearing like hockey pads and then he had a baseball bat in one hand and like was holding a basketball in the other one. And he had a soccer cleat on his right foot with a soccer ball tucked underneath and then like a roller skate on the other one. And and there was like a golf club in there somewhere and a tennis racket and there was a frisbee. Like any possible sport you could think of was somehow attached to this cartoon boy, this picture. And at the bottom of this picture, it said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Can I tell you, Acts Church? That is not what this text is about. Like at all. You know, I mean, I think Tim Tebow's in, as interesting as the next guy, but he can wear Philippians 4.13 under his eyes. That's not going to get him to score more touchdowns or less, as the case may be, right? <laughs> and so, so what is that text about? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, as we dig into it, what's important when we read the Bible is that we read it in context, right? That we don't just pluck verses out and say, hey, that feels good, and we'll, we'll just use that however we want. But we want to read it in context and say, what's God saying in the bigger picture here? And so we're going to read it in context, and it's going to teach us what it is to be content. And so we'll start with verse 10, and we'll, we'll get to verse 13. So if you, you have your Bibles open, uh, we'll be at verse 10. If not, we'll have it up here. And so Paul writes, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so Paul starts his text off by rejoicing that the Philippians were concerned for him. And you remember Paul's in prison in Rome, right? And the Philippians sent him a gift to, to take care of him while he's in prison of, of food and money. And so this letter is him actually writing back to them after they gave, they gave him this gift. He's writing back to them to say thanks. And so that's what he's rejoicing about. He's saying, hey, thank you so much for caring about me. Thank you for, for sending me this gift to take care of me. But then he goes on. If we look at verses 11 and 12, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and, and hunger, abundance and need. And so Paul's saying, hey, it's great that you gave this gift to me. It's great you gave that to me. But even if you hadn't, even if you hadn't given me that gift, I'd still be okay. No matter what, I'd still be content. If I have nothing or if I have everything, if I'm full or if I'm hungry, no matter what the circumstance is, I will be content because I know the secret to being content. That's what Paul says. No matter what's going on around me, I know the secret to being content, to being satisfied with where I'm at. Let's pause for a second here. Right? Paul is saying that no matter what circumstances are around him, no matter what's going on, he has the secret of what it is to be content. He has the secret of what it is to be satisfied with where he's at. And mind you, he's writing these words while he's in chains in prison. He's saying, in this context, I'm content. I'm content right now while in chains in prison. Now I wonder, can you say the same thing? Could you say that, that you are content right now? That you're content. Are you in a state of satisfaction? Or are you, via the rebel yell, always looking for more, more, more? More money, more toys, more time, more promotions, more clients, more relationships, more acceptance, more recognition, more status, more people in church, more love, more whatever, more, more, more. Is it ever enough for us? Right? Are, we, are we ever perfectly balanced? Like when we get that one thing that we say we need in order to be content, are we actually content then? More, more, more. And so what's the secret? How do, how do we live in this state of contentment? How do we do that? How do we find that, that state of contentment? Well, Paul says he's got the answer. Philippians 4 verse 13. This is how we read it. It says, the answer to being content is I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's how Paul stays content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul can face anything because Christ is strengthening him. Paul can be content in any circumstance because Christ is strengthening him. And so what we learn the secret to being content is where is your strength? Where are you placing your strength? Where are you finding your strength? If you're not content, that's the question. If your strength is in Christ, Paul says you're content. If it's not, then there's something else you're placing your strength in. And I think there's, there's two places where people have a tendency to place their strength. On the one hand, there's, there's a group of people that, that place their strength in themselves, right? I, I can do what I want. I make my own way. I don't need anybody or anything. 
I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, thank you very much. As long as I live up to my own standards, I don't need anybody else. Okay, so that's, that's one pull. Then the other extreme, on the other hand, there are people who draw their strength from others. Right? They need to be accepted by everybody. They're looking to be accepted, appreciated, valued. And as long as other people like them, as long as other people value them, then they're okay. Then they feel okay. And so those are kind of the two poles. And I don't think, I know most of you here, and I don't think we have anyone that's, this is definitely you and this is definitely you. I think, I think we all sit somewhere between these two spheres. And some of us have a tendency this way, and some of us have a tendency this way, where we look to ourselves for strength, or we look to others to, for strength. But this text shows us we won't find contentment that way. That if that's where we're drawing our strength from, either from ourselves or from other people, we won't find contentment that way, that ultimately both of those will fail us. They won't work out. And so Paul starts first by showing us that drawing strengths from ourselves, from inside, won't do. If you look with me again at verse 11, Paul says this, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances so Paul says he's learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And the word he uses for content is the Greek word at arkes, at arkes. And this was a huge word in Paul's day, huge word in Paul's day, because one of the leading philosophies at that time was Stoicism. And Stoicism was this philosophy that was all about being content. It was all about being content. It insisted that the secret to life was self-mastery through the practice of virtue, independent of other people. So the idea was, you, you face whatever's going on in your life on your own. You learn to be the island. You learn to be a strong person on your own. And that's the trick. That's the secret to contentment in Stoicism. And uh, one of the leading philosophers in this was a guy named Seneca. Um, if you remember ninth grade English, he actually redid uh, Oedipus. If you remember that play, The Greek Tragedy, he wrote a version of that um, around Paul's time. He was a contemporary of St. Paul. Uh, but Seneca wrote a book called De Vida Bieta, and he says something that sounds almost identical to what Paul says in verse 11. I'll have it up here on the screen. He says, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. So he's this leader in Stoic philosophy. And Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And so those, those two quotes are, I mean, they're almost identical. And so, so what's going on here? What's Paul doing? It seems like he's teeing his original hearers up to expect him to say that the secret of contentment is found in you. Paul sounds like a Stoic here. Now, why is he doing that? Why would he want to sound like a philosophy that isn't exactly what, what we as Christians would subscribe to? Because Paul's walking a tightrope. He knows that on the one hand, contentment does involve the individual will to a certain degree. But he also knows, on the other hand, that contentment cannot truly be found by only looking inward, by only drawing strength from within. Because if you do that, it leads to detachment and emotional separation from everyone around you. If you draw strength only from within, it leads to detachment and emotional separation from those around you. So I've been reading a book recently uh, called Daring Greatly, and it's by a social researcher named uh, Dr. Brene Brown. And she uh, researches vulnerability and shame. Vulnerability and shame. And, and she writes about the danger of what I'd call modern-day stoicism, which is this idea where we put our fences up, we put our guards up against people, don't let anyone else in our life, don't let anyone see what's going on with us, and we just 
keep ourselves nice and safe. And so she writes about her own experience with that and what it's like for her. And I think I want to share some of that with you. And I think that you'll actually find within the first sentence, it's pretty fitting for our context, at least from what I've learned uh, since living here. She writes this. I'm a fifth generation Texan with a family motto of lock and load. Okay. She's from Houston. Uh, so I, I come by my aversion to uncertainty and emotional exposure honestly and genetically. By middle school, which is the time when most of us begin to wrestle with vulnerability, I began to develop and hone my vulnerability avoidance skills. Over time, I tried everything from the good girl with my perform perfect please routine to clove smoking poet, angry activist, corporate climber, and out of control party girl. At first glance, these may seem like reasonable, if not predictable, developmental stages, but they were more than that for me. All of my stages were different suits of armor that kept me from becoming too engaged and too vulnerable. Each strategy was built on the same premise. Keep everyone at a safe distance and always have an exit strategy. Strategy. Keep everyone at a safe distance and always have an exit strategy. Now, what's she hitting on here? I don't know about you, but, but I see this in our culture all over the place. Uh, depending on, on your generation, you know this guy. If you're from my generation, uh, give or take 10 years, uh, we call this guy chill, right? Oh, he's really chill, which means he's not really too engaged. He doesn't really stand up for anything. Sort of just lets life happen to him, lets it wash over. Not really too invested in anyone. If you're from maybe an older generation, you say something like, well, he just likes to keep to himself, right? And what that means is he's not too emotionally invested in anyone. He's not really standing up for anyone. He's not uh, engaging with anyone. And there's a great attraction to that sort of life because then you don't get hurt, right? And all you have to do is live up to your own standards. You're not dependent on anyone or anything. I get it, it's attractive, but it comes at a great cost, right? If you seek to be content by yourself, by your own standards, looking to your own strength, then you're not looking to anyone else or anything else for strength or love or companionship. And pretty soon, if all you're doing is drawing strength from yourself for contentment, you find yourself alone, even in the midst of a crowd, right? You're alone in a crowd. So Paul warns against this in the first part of our text. He says, I know that this is how the Stoics are thinking, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just finding strength from within. You need to find it from without. But then he warns against the other extreme and says, but don't find it from without just by other people alone. Look with me at verses 14 through 18. He writes this. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, at first glance, you may say, Gabe, I, I don't get it. I don't see what this text has to do with finding strength in other people. It seems like Paul's just saying he's rejoicing that they gave him a gift. He's just excited that they, they gave him this gift. And on the one hand, that's exactly what he's doing. 
But on the other hand, what, what Paul's doing in this text is he's very intentionally framing their relationship. He's very intentionally framing their relationship, explaining how things work. Let me unpack that. See, in the, the Greco-Roman world, gift-giving was a very big deal. Uh, if someone gave someone else a gift, that could be the start or the end of a relationship. If someone accepted that gift and then reciprocated by giving a gift back, then they, were, they had a friendship. If they didn't accept that gift, then they were enemies. That was the end of it. And so it was, it was a big deal that if someone gave you a gift, you had to give a gift back. And there's a, a scholar named uh, G.W. Peterman who comments on this, and I just want to read, uh, read some of what he wrote to you because I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand the context. Speaking about the Greco-Roman uh, world, he writes this. In fact, the counter gift itself serves to express gratitude for the initial gift. A gift giver is socially superior to the recipient. So parity in giving and receiving simply maintains the relative status of each party. Okay, we get that. So if you want to keep the same social status, if someone gives you a gift, you give them a gift of equal value back. That's how you do it, back and forth, back and forth. To grow in status, one must exceed in giving because this aspect of interpersonal relations is based on transactions among interested parties. Language and images from the commercial sphere are sometimes used to describe these social relationships. And so what he's saying is that relationships work like financial transactions, right? You give me this gift, then I give you this gift. And if I give you this big of a gift, that means that you gotta do this as big a one the next time in order for us to be on an equal social playing field. And what's crazy is if you look back at our text, Paul uses language like this. He uses commercial language. He uses financial transaction language. Look with me at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And so you see that sentence and it's this financial transaction language and it sounds like he's teeing them up to be like, and now here's a great gift from me. But instead he changes the language from transaction to sacrificial. He says, your gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so what's Paul doing? He's changing the way the Philippians think. He's looking at the culture around them and seeing that they live in a culture that says, if I do this for you, then you have to do that for me. And Paul says, that's not how the Christian life works. That's not how Christian relationships work. It's not relationships of transaction, it's relationships of sacrifice. That's how it works. And if you try to find your strength in relationships of transaction, you will never be content. You'll never be content. Now, fortunately for us, uh, relationships based on transaction were only an issue in first century Rome and not an issue for us anymore, right? Right. <laughs> no, of course, we run into the same issue. See, when we seek to find our, our strength in others, we inevitably find ourselves in a consumer-provider relationship. And those never lead to contentment. Right? Just think about it like this. Uh, Melissa and I, we buy our groceries uh, at Target. Okay? And the reason we do that, this is our relationship to Target. The reason we do that is she has an app on her phone that gets us sweet discounts at Target, good, good coupons. And so we just bring that in. And also, unlike HEB, it's not eternally under construction. And so, so it makes life a lot easier. And so that's where we buy our groceries, purely for those reasons, right? That's our relationship to our grocer. Now, it's consumer provider. Now, if HEB were to develop a sweet app that got us a fat discount and they stopped eternally having construction, guess what? 
We will leave Target in a heartbeat and go to HEB and buy our groceries there. Why? Because it's a consumer provider relationship. They're meeting a need of mine, and so they get paid. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if we bring our relationship to our grocer, to our relationship to real people, that's an issue. Because we have this need for strength, for contentment, for balance, and in order to meet that need, we look to other people. And the issue is that turns our relationship into consumer relationships. And so that works like this. So as long as this person keeps living up to the expectations I have on them, then I'll stay invested in them. As long as this person keeps meeting the needs that I want them to meet, then I'll stay with them. But as soon as they don't, well, then I'll find, I'll find somewhere else to go. When they don't live up to what I need from them, I'll go somewhere else. And so we hop from one person to another, maybe back to that person, trying to find that strength, trying to find that contentment. And see, the problem is consumerism is built on this idea that we're never content, right? That's why we shop. So we're not content. I need more food. I have to eat. So finding our strength in others alone doesn't work. It's like I have this buddy of mine. Uh, he's been dating a girl for a long time, and I always bug him to get married. I'm like, dude, why don't you guys get married? You've been dating forever. And he says, well, well, we'll get married one day. And I say, okay, well, how about today? And, uh, and, and he says, well, no, you know, it's not the right time. I, you know, it, there's something up with my job, her job. Well, something's not quite right with her. I'm not sure if it's the exact right thing. I'm, I'm not sure what we should do. And, and just back and forth, back and forth, he, he's never the right time. And I finally just want to slap him upside the head and say, bro, there's never a perfect time. There's never a perfect woman. Just take the plunge and go for it, Right? But if all your needs for contentment are based on another person, this is the sort of treadmill you end up on. Because no friend is ever loyal enough, no significant other is ever loving enough, no boss is ever smart enough, no church is ever perfect enough, nothing is ever enough because you're seeking strength for contentment from imperfect people. You will never find it there. And so what do we do? How do do we find contentment? Where is your strength? Where are you drawing your strength from? Is it in you? If it is, you end up emotionally detached and alone. Is your strength in others? You end up emotionally dependent and constantly dissatisfied. Where is your strength? Where is your strength? Paul says the key to contentment, the secret to contentment, verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And in verse 19, he adds, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Don't find your strength in you. Find your strength in Christ Jesus. Don't find your strength in others. Find your strength in the God who will supply all of your needs, all of your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus. You see, the secret to contentment is to have Jesus Christ at the center of your life. The secret to contentment is to have Jesus Christ at the center of your life. You see, if Jesus is really at the center of your life, it completely changes how you relate to yourself and how you relate to other people. Completely changes that. Here's what I mean. I was, uh, I was talking to the ladies at the office earlier this week. Uh, and by the office, I mean roasters. And by the ladies at the office, I mean the baristas there. And, um, and I knew what I was going to preach on this Sunday. And so, so I asked them a question. There were two of them working that day. And I said, uh, and they're both Christians. And I asked them, I said, are you content? 
Are you content? And the, the first uh, woman, Wendy is her name, she's the owner of Roasters. And right away, she said, yes. I said, why? I said, How, uh, why, why are you content? She said, because I know that I'm where God wants me. Because I know that I'm where God wants me. And I love that because what we see is how she relates to herself. See, her contentment didn't come from her own strength. She didn't say, because our business is doing well. It didn't come from her own leadership abilities. Because my staff is really awesome. No, it came from God. She knows she's where God wants her, and that's enough. Her relationship to herself has changed because Christ is at the center of her life. Ask the second girl, Priscilla. It's really her name. And, uh, and I said, um, are you content? She paused, and she said, yes. And I was like, well, why the hesitation? And she said, well, if you would have asked me a week ago, if you would have asked me a week ago, I would have said no right away. So because right now my, my husband's pursuing his dream and I'm just kind of playing a supporting role. And so I've been just feeling really stuck. But she said this last week, Wendy and I have been talking and uh, I actually, I've had my eyes open to a bigger perspective. And Wendy said, hey, maybe right now isn't about you. She said, maybe right now God has you in this supporting role uh, for your husband in this moment. And she said, so with that bigger perspective, I can see that God is, is using me in this place right now. And she said, so, so I can be content. And you see the beauty in that response. She, she wasn't looking to her husband for strength. She was looking to God for strength. And because she did that first, she could relate to her husband in a helpful way, in a supporting way. It's a beautiful thing. She doesn't have to pursue her own dreams because she she's content with where God has her so she can serve and allow her husband to pursue his. You see, we only find true contentment if we look outside ourselves if we look outside our own needs and instead find our lives in Christ alone. It's the only way we find contentment. Find it in Christ alone. Because when the reality of God's love for you in Jesus is primary for you, is number one, it's there that you find real contentment. And so let me just encourage you today to find contentment. Take a step towards that. And maybe if you're someone here and you... Jesus is, is for sure not the center of your life. You maybe don't believe in him at all. I'm telling you, the first step towards contentment is trusting in him as Lord and Savior. You can't fix you. Others can't fix you. You can't save you. Give up the fight. Just trust in Jesus. And then those of you that, that have been Christians for a while and you say, well, you know, I trust in Jesus, but I'm not content. Well, really assess where you're drawing your strength from. Are you drawing your strength from him or from something else? Let Jesus be the center of your life. And so if that's you, uh, this Wednesday starts the season of Lent. Uh, Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday, and we'll do Ash Sunday this coming Sunday. So look forward to that. Um, but it's a time for us as Christians to reflect and to fast. And uh, so maybe you need to fast this year. Maybe you need to say, what is it that I'm finding strength from instead of Jesus? And maybe I need to step away from that for a little bit and learn to just keep Jesus at the center. That's what fasting does, is it teaches us to rely on God. I want to encourage you to do that. Whatever it takes, you find your strength in Christ. And if you find your strength in Christ, you will find contentment. And so as we close, I just want to speak the blessing over you that, that Paul gave to the Philippian church. In verse 23. 
He says, and now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may your grace be with our spirit. Lord, teach us to be content. Teach us to find our strength in you, not in ourselves, not in others, but in you. Lord, we need you. We trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.